You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you would turn to uh, four passages, actually. Um, we're we're going to do something a little different today, look at four different passages a little bit uh, together. But uh, Romans 14, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, and then the book of James will be in chapters 4 and 5. So um, Romans 14, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, and then James 4 and 5 are the places that you want to kind of um, poke a finger in or put a bulletin piece there, whatever you need to do to mark those. Um, I apologize a little bit today for uh, my voice may sound a little odd. Um, I may be taking more sips of water than normal. Uh, We've had varying illnesses that have struck our home this week, and um, so that's why I wasn't seated out here today. That's why uh, when it comes time for our invitation, um, James Holland's going to come down and receive people, and I'm going to go back into my little cave area back here, and then I'm going to exit out that side door because I don't want to unknowingly have something to give to any of the rest of you today. So uh, if you'll bear with me today as we, as we fight through this. Uh, this is the last Sunday, really, for our One Another series. Uh, we have next Sunday, which is uh, the Lord's Supper Sunday, because Advent begins the last Sunday of the month, and so we're moving Lord's Supper up a week. And we will have uh, some focus on the one another sayings at the Lord's Supper Sunday as well. But this is kind of our last one as far as a, a, a weekly installment of what it means to deal with these one another pieces of Scripture. And up till this point, all of the one another commands have been positive in nature, meaning they've been for us to do something. So love one another, serve one another, bear with one another, clothe yourself with humility to one another. It's all been positive reinforcements of things to do. Today we're going to look at four pieces of scripture where the one another commands are negative in meaning. When I say negative, I mean there's, they're commands to us to stop doing things within the body of Christ. And so we're going to take all four of them, we're going to kind of condense them down today and uh, put them under two headings, really. The first of which there in your bulletin is this, that as we walk through these negative or these don't commands, the first thing we want to do is to guard our mind. We want to guard our mind. If you look at Romans 14, beginning verse 13, if you will, and follow along with me all the way to verse 19. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So the first idea behind guarding our mind with these don't commands is to Learn from Paul here in Romans 14 that the first one we look at is avoiding a critical or a judgmental spirit on one another. 
Do not any longer pass judgment on one another. I, I would encourage you this week to read all of Romans 14. The very first one another um, Sunday was out of Romans 15, where it was that we are to have peace and harmony with one another. Romans 14 is really the foundation for that teaching in Romans 15. Because where there is judgment among us from one another, peace and harmony cannot exist. So I would encourage you to read all of 14, not just this piece, but we're going to kind of walk through it just a little bit today. There were some unique challenges in this church at Rome. It was made up of both Jew and Gentile, so you had different um, backgrounds, different cultures coming together. Many who were saved out of the church of Rome, like many of the New Testament churches, were saved out of either a very pagan background or a non-religious background at all. So they really didn't have a foundational piece of what it meant to even know who God was. And then there was the issue of what it means to live in spiritual freedom in a culture where pretty much anything goes. The Christian has spiritual freedom in Christ. But the reality of it is what we do with that spiritual freedom either honors him or it does not honor him. And so the issues at hand here uh, that we just read through are issues of food and drink. That's, that's listed eight times in chapter 14. So it was a big one among that, that church. Uh, the importance of different holy days. Uh, in verse 5 of chapter 14, he mentions that. And it was not uh, just strictly limited to the church at Rome. Uh, when Paul writes to the Colossian church in chapter 2, he talks about not letting anybody pass judgment on you for the days you observe or the days you don't observe. And so these issues are at hand. And with these issues, what Paul does is he gives instruction in that very first part of verse 13. Therefore... Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. We want to avoid a critical, judgmental spirit within the body of Christ. Now, here, to pass judgment in this setting is not to uh, really adequately see the situation or see the person that's involved in the situation, but it's to sort of view them maybe from a distance, view their lives maybe from a very surface level, and then cast a judgment on them or cast criticism on them without having really talked talk to them, without really having dealt with them and, and gone to them in brotherly love and sisterly love and talked about the issue. It's, it's looking back at a distance and not being together and bringing judgment upon a person. John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist faith, um, strong preacher within the Methodist faith, there was a story told about him that he had little respect for a man in his church who he considered very greedy. And there was one time that their church was giving to a charity over and above what the church tithed to. And the man apparently gave a very small amount of money. And Wesley had an assumption, at least, that the man had more money than that. And he openly criticized him from the pulpit. He brought judgment upon him. And the story says the man went to Wesley privately after that, told him he'd only been living on parsnips and water for weeks because he had great debt and he had many creditors that he had to pay off. And he said this to Wesley, Christ has made me an honest man. With all these debts to pay, I can only give a few offerings above my tithe. I must settle up with my worldly neighbors Show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once dishonest. Wesley immediately apologized and asked for forgiveness. Because he had seen on a surface level what he presumed, and he had cast judgment on that individual, on that believer. 
So Paul says we don't do that. This is the negative command. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Look at the second part there of verse 13. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Quite literally, the word for stumbling block and hindrance is a word that they would have used to describe a trap that would catch the foot of an animal. And so this stumbling block hindrance issue is living in such a way where we capture another believer, another brother or sister in Christ in a negative fashion. Metaphorically, the Bible uses this terminology to talk about causing someone else to sin, either by preventing them from pursuing a righteous behavior or by out and out just promoting their sinful behavior. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus says, if your right hand or your right eye causes you to sin... Cut it off, pluck it out. It's the same terminology there. It causes you to sin that we see here with stumbling block and with the hindrance. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 John 2.10, John says, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So John correlates the love for one another to this issue of not presenting a stumbling block to one another. And Paul gives them his own example here in verse 14 and 15. Read that again with me, if you will. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no, <clears throat> no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Again, as we see with lots of New Testament church issues, this wasn't just limited to Rome. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul expounds to that church about all these food and drink issues. And at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, as Paul's wrapping that teaching up, he basically says this, I'm going to paraphrase it. He says, therefore, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. Now, this is difficult, <laughs> Because what would be our sort of first response in the culture we live in today? Paul, that's not that big a deal. You've got the right to have a good steak. Jesus doesn't frown on that. That's, that's that person's problem if they see you eating meat and it causes them to stumble. That's their issue. It's not yours. But yet the reality is the scripture gives us no loophole of that. It gives us no understanding, no command for any Christian to say, well, if somebody else has a problem with what I'm doing in my freedom in Christ, that's their problem, not mine. Now, we don't have food issues too much today. I don't know that there's too many of us that would um, say one thing negative to somebody else about what they eat and what they don't eat or drink. But we sure have other issues sometimes that pop up, don't they? Of what someone is doing within their freedom of Christ that they feel, as Paul felt, persuaded in the Lord that it's okay for them to do. And the mature Christian looks at that, and when he's, he or she is aware that there's an issue for that or there's a problem for that, the mature Christian solves it by not putting a stumbling block or hindrance in that way any longer. Not digging the heels in and going, but it's my right! But by saying, no, in Christian love for you, brother, in Christian love for you, sister, I'll stop. I'll stop. If you flip over to Galatians 5 for the second part of guarding our mind. This is what Paul writes here following as he's talked about the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5. 
He says, beginning verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. So the first part of guarding our mind was to guard against a critical or judgmental spirit. The second part of guarding our mind is to guard against a competitive spirit. You say, why do you use the word competitive here? Well, for these three words, conceited, provoking, and envying. The conceited person is one who has an exaggerated self-image or self-worth. The conceited person is a person who uh, is really mostly concerned about his or her reputation on the surface level and not at all worried about what people really know them to be on an interior level. And so it's a person who gets conceited here. The the context of it would be a a person who gets conceited spiritually. Perhaps as Paul's gone through the spiritual gifts, perhaps they've been in their minds or maybe even verbally going, oh, I'm great at love, I'm great at patience, I'm great at self-control, I'm great at gentleness. Becoming conceited in those ways. And he says the conceited person provokes another person. This idea of provoking actually comes from uh, an athletic uh, competition in Paul's day, and it would be one person calling out another and calling them out in such a way to invite a comparison or to have a contest with the intention of belittling or humiliating them. So maybe you've ever, you've ever seen like a football game, perhaps, or a basketball game where uh, the, the phrase we talk about today is talking trash, Right? That's the conceited person who's talking trash to the opponent, trying to get them to to be provoked into doing something or uh, trying to to belittle them or humiliate them. So Paul says, we we need to stop doing this because what that does then is it creates envy. Envy and jealousy are, are cousins, but they're not brothers and sisters. Jealousy is an irrational thought or control over your own possessions or your own success. Envy is irrational thinking or controls or thoughts over someone else's success and possessions. And so what Paul says is when we have this competitive spirit and we begin to, to walk through this way, it, it creates this provoking, creates this envy, and then ultimately that very much seeks to tear a person down rather than build a person up. It's very much a Pharisee tax collector situation from Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee stands in prayer up towards the front. God, I'm glad I'm not like everybody else. I tithe and I pray and I do this and I'm certainly not like this tax collector back here. And if you know the scripture, you know that the tax collector is kneeled down in a, in a very humble position, beating his chest as a sign of sorrow and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is a very similar situation with Paul's dealing with. But both of these situations, a critical spirit or a competitive spirit, often deal, are often a result from how we deal with sin. Let me explain that a little more. It doesn't mean that we refrain from calling sin what the Bible clearly calls sin. Well, the Bible's clear on sin, we should stand on that truth. It does mean we refrain from calling sin what the Bible does not clearly identify as sin. When I was a youth pastor, one of the things that I would often do um, with graduating seniors out of high school was help them uh, in their colleges, and particularly if they wanted to go to a Christian college somewhere, and I'd sit down with them and their parents, and we'd talk through um, the materials and resources they had, and I remember really vividly one individual who was wanting to go to a certain Christian college in the Midwest, and we were working through some of the resources, and we got to the student handbook and the student dress code, and one of the top things on the student dress code was this. 
male students are not permitted to wear white t-shirts on campus uncovered. And I just, I just looked at the individual that was considered, I said, have they explained that to you? Why? She says, yes, they consider white t-shirts underwear, and so therefore you can't wear underwear uncovered on campus, and it's sinful. Thankfully, she did not go there. Because that was evidence of someone who was calling something sin that the Bible does not clearly call sin. So we have to be careful with that in our, in our critical spirit, judgmental spirit, or our competitive spirit. And then lastly, we also have this. It also means we take seriously Jesus' teachings about the speck in the log. Not being judgmental in Romans 14 and, and the, the teaching from Jesus in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount of judge not lest you be judged is not that we never judge, but it's that we always begin with God search me, try me, look in my heart, in my inner depths and deal with me before I ever go to anybody else. That's one way that we guard our minds in these negative commands. Secondly, we guard our mouth. Colossians 3, 9 and 10, if you want to look there with me. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, I, I like this scripture because this is one of those that doesn't really require a lot of digging. <laughs> Do not lie to one another. I mean, it's, it's black and white. It's right there. It's important because we are followers of a man who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we who are followers of the truth lie to one another, we are not taking on his character, but we are taking on the character of our enemy. Because in John 8, what he said about Satan was he was a liar from the beginning. When he speaks, he speaks out of his character. He's a liar and is the father of lies. And so when Christian brothers and sisters lie to one another, we take on the character of the enemy as opposed to the character of the Christ. In our day, this plays out in a couple different ways. Obviously, in our direct conversations with one another. We need to be truthful with one another. I know, I know sometimes the, the, um, the pushback on it is, well, but, you know, the truth hurts. Well, that's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Truth does hurt when it comes aggressively and angrily and all those things. But when we speak the truth in love, truth is something that we are to be known for. So in our direct conversations with one another, secondarily in our conversations with others about one another. You're having conversations with someone else in the body of Christ about someone else in the body of Christ, speak truthfully. Don't make things up. Don't embellish things. Don't, do, don't say things to somehow maybe put you on a different pedestal or in a different position. And then thirdly, I wrote down, and what's kind of unique for us today how do we speak the truth in the public eye? How do you and I speak the truth on our social media, for example? Because every time we like something, share something, retweet something, and people know that we're a Christ follower, then they're, they're, they're looking at that. They're examining that to see if what we're doing matches up with what they know to be of Jesus. And sometimes, I just got to be honest, I'm not telling you not to have social media. That's completely up between you and the Lord. 
But sometimes we're just too easy and too quick to just blindly share and link and retweet and not do any research of our own. We should be asking questions like, is this true? And finding out if it's true. I don't mean saying, well, yeah, I heard it from my cousin who's got a sister who works a couple states away who had a brother who was part of the, the organization that did this back three years ago. That's, that's not research. That's hearsay. That's inadmissible in court. It ought to be inadmissible on what we do with our social media. We've got to be careful of, of how truthful we are in this area today. A recent study last year showed 19 of the 20 most popular, quote, Christian Facebook pages. So these would be Christian Facebook pages, not necessarily associated with a church, but with like an idea or a movement or something along those lines. 19 of the 20 most popular were confirmed to be run by what are called troll accounts overseas. And what a troll account does is it seeks to influence culture and people and religion and politics by what it links into your newsfeed. 19 of the 20. Now, the reality is this is not new, right? The church has always had to be careful of this. I, I made this um, statement in a, in a message, I don't know how many months ago it's been, but some of you remember it. I talked about the 1928 presidential election where the New York governor named Al Smith, who was a Catholic, was running for the president of the United States. And the construction had just been completed recently on the Holland Tunnel. And there were churches in Georgia who did not want to see the Catholic become president. And so they began to print leaflets that saying the, said the Holland Tunnel was just a practice run so that when he became president, they would dig a tunnel all the way from under the White House, under the Atlantic, straight to the Vatican so that the Pope could go back and forth, back and forth and run America. Now the, the difference is, in 1928, they had to go print up papers and take them and put them in people's hands and take them door to door. Today, all it takes is a like or a share. And we pass along things that are just as bad. Do not lie to one another. Not only do not lie to one another, but do not lie to the world. Look at James, if you will, the letter of James for our last point here, how to guard our mouth. First in 4, 11, and 12. James 4, 11, and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, connecting back to Romans uh, 14, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So James writes, don't speak evil, don't slander people, don't defame their character, don't run them down, either to their face or behind their back. Don't speak evil in this sense. And the understanding of 11 and 12, where he then writes in this understanding of what it means to be a judge or judge the law and put yourself, really, when a person speaks evil in this sense, their motive is to establish superiority over the person they're speaking evil of. They want to stand in judgment. And so James is cautioning them. There's only one true judge. If you seek to put yourself in his position, then you're going to have issues. Both persons are in need of the mercy of God. 
not simply one of them. R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on James, says this, These persons who speak evil of others are driven by a moral compulsion to make others aware of the other person's faults. And I love the way he puts this last line. Fault-finding is, to them, a spiritual gift. You ever known anybody or maybe even known yourself, maybe in a period of your life, to think that your spiritual gift was finding everybody's faults? What it means to speak evil of someone. The bottom line is this. This scripture and others that are connected to it forbid any language from one believer to another that tears them down. And then in James, just a page over, James 5, 9 and 10. He writes, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Do not speak evil. Do not grumble against one another. Do not complain. Do not be discontented with one another. It's really interesting here that that's right in the midst of teachings in verses 7 and 8 of being patient. And then in verses 10 and 11 following of living steadfastly. We don't know the full extent of the audience of who James wrote to. But in James 1.1 he calls them, based on how your translation reads it, people of the dispersion. And the dispersion were the people who had been driven from their homelands exiled and so perhaps their grumbling is because they're exiled perhaps their drum their grumbling is because uh, they're, they're impatient they want to return home perhaps they're they're grumbling if you look at uh, chapter five the first six verses there or so uh, on your own time this week you'll see that James talks about all these people who are getting rich and wealthy around them perhaps their grumbling was was dedicated in that way they were they felt like they weren't getting theirs Regardless, it's apparent the circumstances around them were negatively affecting their love for one another because they were grumbling, complaining against one another. And again, as with most New Testament things, it wasn't limited to who James was writing to. In Philippians 2, 14 and 15, for example, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling. Without grumbling. Let me just ask, ask a self-test of us today. Do you find yourself to be more negative in the last two to three years than you were prior? Do you find yourself grumbling? Does it come easier than it once did in your life? Is it easier to try to find fault with people than maybe you did before the last couple, three years? James Lane Allen, who was a Kentucky author in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, Lane Allen Road in Lexington is named for him. Lane, uh, Lane Allen Elementary School is named for him. He has a quote that says this, Adversity does not build character, it reveals it. What is the adversity of the last two, three, five, seven, eight, ten years of our lives revealed about us? Has it revealed for us that we are, as James asks them to be, patient and Look at the examples of the prophets who suffered for the goodness of God. Are we steadfast or are we just quickly blown about by every wind of thought and idea and trend? As adversity causes us to grumble more. How do we avoid this grumbling? I'm put together a few suggestions for us all. The first one is this. Before we grumble or complain or bring anything to anybody, have you prayed? 
And I don't mean prayed once. <laughs> I mean, have we prayed a lot? God, is this really something that you're laying in my wheelhouse to then take to the next step? Have we prayed about it? Have we considered the situation from a different perspective? Instead of just looking at it and wanting to grumble about it, complain about it, have we thought about it from a different way? Is the grumbling personal preference or is it a real concern? The Bible doesn't say you can't grumble or complain about things that need to be grumbled and complained about. In the very beginning of Acts 6, there's a complaint that rises up against one group of people from another within the church because one group of widows is not getting fed. That's a valid complaint. And so there are times that grumbling or complaining is something that is valid, but we must always ask that question. Is this a real concern or is this just maybe a personal preference issue? Fourth, what do I hope to achieve by grumbling? What do I hope to achieve by going to the pastor, to the deacon, to the Sunday school teacher, to the person sitting next to me in the pew or behind me in the pew? What do I hope to achieve through this grumbling, through this voicing? And then finally, will this grumbling ultimately help heal or cause division in the church? Do not grumble, James says. Because if we don't work through things like these suggestions, grumbling and complaining just cause more and more issues. And we would be mindful to remember that as Moses was leading Israel out of Egypt, that the first few chapters, Exodus 15, 16, and 17 of that journey consist of Israel grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. Grumbling to the point where they actually said these words to Moses. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt and die. Who in their right mind says that? Nobody in their right mind. But in their mind that was filled with grumbling and complaining and woe is me and pity party and everything else. That's what they believed. And, and if you know that story of Exodus, if you know the journey through Numbers and Deuteronomy and how it talks about the journey of Israel, you know that there were times after times after time that God finally said, okay, you want to grumble? You want more meat? I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to stink up your nose. You want to grumble against Moses and the people I've set in leadership? I'll take care of that too. God is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for thankfulness. He's looking for gratitude from his people for what he's done for us. He's not looking for grumbling. We guard our mind from competitive and critical spirits. We guard our mouth from lying and speaking evil and grumbling about, against one another. Four negative commands before great outcomes to the church that's willing and committed to do it. Guard our mind, guard our mouth for his glory. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.